Hi everyone, Scott here from the Gen X Playback Show, getting ready to start part two of our episode on our favorite movies of the 1990s. We already covered a wide range of movies in the first half in part one. Now we're going to take a turn towards uh, the comedies and the romantic comedies in the 90s. So if we haven't mentioned your favorite movie yet, there's a good chance we're going to cover at least one or two of them here in the second half of our episode. So sit back and enjoy, and we'll begin part two with our favorite movie of all time. Another one that you mentioned uh, on your list is number one on my list, and that would be Good Will Hunting. See, you said our lists were probably going to be different, but those are the same. Yeah. I mean, those, those are my two favorite. Shawshank and Good Will Hunting are my two favorite movies of all time. Absolutely. Same with me. Yeah. So I guess we're not that different. You know, <laughs> you know, I guess that proves that sometimes brothers can have things in common. So yeah, Good Will Hunting, incredible that this is the first time we ever see Matt Damon. Well, he was in Dead Poet Society. As a, you know, he was he was young. He's, I didn't I didn't see Dead Poet he's, Society. He's he's my age, so you're talking, you know, mid nineties. He's still in his mid twenties. Yeah. So he's uh, Ben Affleck, the most uh, you know. He was on Dazed and Confused. Uh, oh, so, see, I, I knew Ben Affleck from right. from Dazed and Confused. Yeah. So, but but these guys were you know they were friends and they decided to work on a script together. Uh, ben Affleck, Ben really takes a step back in terms of in the movie, although I love his character. Because, Chucky. Because Chucky... Chucky's great. Chucky uh, actually has probably the most mature comments to Will hunting, or, uh, uh, you know, Matt Damon's character, at the very end, which kind of snaps Will into uh, into reality where... He kind of needs to move on with his life. Okay, but so let, let, let's set it up a little bit uh, with this. The whole premise of the movie is you have Will, who's 20 years old, and he is from South Boston. He's a Southie, right? Yes. And so he's kind of, it's a rough scrabble area that he's from. He's from a very, uh, you know, a poor background. He's kind of been passed around from home to home. He's He's been in juvie. He's he's has a very huge problem with anger. Well, he's he's been in the foster system. Yep. So he has no he has no no formal family. Though he has he has created one. His buddies are yeah. are his family. Right. And um, but yeah, he has had a horrible, very abusive Beaten, past. Yes. Um, you know, uh, by by his foster parents, and he's just bounced around, and he's a young man who has a lot of anger in him. But on the other side, he's incredibly brilliant. He is an absolute genius. He, 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 I know that term gets thrown around, but it, at least the character this that they're portraying is a once-in-a-lifetime genius that is walking around in tattered clothes, coming out coming out of the uh, you know the the prison system. And he is instead of him being a student at. M- was it MIT? It was MIT. Instead of him being a student at MIT, he actually is working as the janitor at MIT. Right. And the reason that the the whole the story kind of moves along is because he's sort of this down and out guy. He bounces around from job to job. He's working as a janitor at MIT. Well, there's in the in the math department the professor who is a very uh, award winning. He's won numerous awards. Professor in math Lambeau. And he's won, uh, like I said, numerous awards. 
outside of his, out of the classroom, he puts this very complicated uh, mathematical problem and he challenges the students to solve it. And he puts it out there in the hallway. So he comes out of, uh, comes down the hall the one night and everybody else is gone. And here this janitor, this kid who is Will Hunting is writing on the board. So he doesn't know what he's doing at this point. Right, right. So, so back it up a little bit is that he all, he had other problems out there that got solved. Right. And, and he'd say, so which of you brilliant students solved my problem? And they never knew it, but it had been Will. And he just kind of, while he's sweeping the floors, wandered over and do, 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 just solved it. And this was a problem. And they're like, no, we couldn't do it. None of us could do it. So he puts out another problem, even harder than the first one. And then that's when he stumbles upon Will, who, while Will was cleaning floors at MIT, he also at night was reading. And he would go out and he would check out these, these, you know, these deep volumes and he was incredibly well read this he had the his buddies are funny and in, in that they are kind of the stereotypical knuckleheads from his area always going out drinking always going out looking for a fight but fiercely loyal you know they they, they were always going to have his back but will has that side about him as he, well he does but there's sometimes a lot of nights he'll tell his buddies that ah, i'm tired i'm going to go home and like watch tv and he goes home and he reads dante and he has this photographic memory right so he it's not that it's just a natural genius he's actually studying on his own and he the the, the professor as scott said you know wanders out and he finds will and saw you know will writing on the board and he's furious because this janitor's messing with his problem. He walks up, he looks at it, and the problem's correct. Because he starts saying, hey, 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 you, you come back here. And, he, and Will just keeps running off. Yeah. So the, the professor now realizes that this kid, this non-student, um, is this brilliant, you know, he's, he's basically solving the hardest math problems that he can put out there. So the, the, the professor, Professor Landau, tries to get involved in, uh, in 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 getting him to move in a better direction, and I guess what Landau wants him to do is he wants him to move into the field of uh, whether it's um, engineering or math, you know, being a mathematician. He wants him to uh, get a successful job. Uh, but prior to all this happening, Will had gotten into a fight, and he had to, as part of his plea bargain agreement, had to agree to meet with some type of a counselor. Mm -hmm. And so Landau got that for him to keep him out of jail. Because at this point, uh, he had had enough strikes against him that he was going to go to prison. So Professor Landau kind of does him a favor, but they're trying to get him proper counseling. And unfortunately, Will is just the better. He gets these people and they quit. Nobody wants to work with this kid. He's so hard to work with. Because he's smarter than anybody else in the room. And, and he, he just has sport with them when they come in. And he almost takes great pleasure in bringing them to tears. And so Professor Landau ha has brought the best and the brightest. I think at one point, um, George Plimpton? He does. Yeah. yeah he, George he's Plimpton makes an appearance. And um, so he's they, everybody rejects working with him. So out of desperation... Landau thinks about his old college roommate, who uh, uh, is the character Sean, that is played by Robin Williams. Robin Williams, yeah. in his best role. I mean, he's done some great things, but uh, you know, in Goodwill Hunting, 
just I, I can't I can't even describe the the depth that he brought to that character and all the levels that you know, I think of Robin Williams as, as kind of zany and funny. Uh, he was very funny at times in this in this movie, but just uh, hands down, in my opinion, his best performance. And he's somebody that that has a similar background to Will. He's also a Southie. He 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 is. He is from you know he he'd been abused when he was young, but also a smart guy. And you know, it, it, as Landau says, tells him, "You always were smarter than me." But he's he's never achieved a whole lot. He's he's working at the community college. He kind of gave up on life when his wife died. He had a wife that died right. uh, died of cancer, so he kind of packed it in. He he yeah yes he he quit. He's he he wasn't pursuing the the higher levels anymore. This, this was you know he he was just getting by, and a lot of the movie that we will see moving forward is yes, Sean, the the comes to help will but also in a lot of way working with will help sean come Absolutely. around where yeah. the, the the two have these same similar paths throughout their lives where and that's part of the reason why they can relate as well as what they do is they both were fr- were southies they both were abused when they were young they both were incredibly smart they both were kind of they had these mechanisms where they wanted to push people away you know, so Robin Williams was, he was a little more tactful. He was somebody that could get along with other people in life, but he kind of gave up and he wouldn't go back to the reunions and he didn't want to associate with people that were from his, his you know, his high intellectual days. He, he was just kind of mailing it in. And Will was, you know, had these self-defense mechanisms. We, we can talk about his girlfriend, Skylar, um, you know, where he is, and whole uh, theme throughout the movie is he keeps pushing her away and she's somebody who's a Harvard student who will you know loves deeply but he just is afraid to ever let his guard down because of everything that's happened to him yeah and um i think one of the breakthroughs that probably happened between sean and will is at one point where they were just meeting for the first time or two i might have been session two and will's hammering on what Will had, or what uh, Sean had painted, he'd done like a painting. He's like, oh, is that paint by numbers mm-hmm. or something? And so he's basically ripping, and, and then they get into his relationships. And he starts talking about a wife that he has no idea about, oh, but he kind of he kind of catches on yeah. to something. And at one point- uh, He's like, leave my wife out of it. He goes, oh, so that's it. Yeah. And then he kept going. Yeah. And then at one point, Sean grabs him by the throat. Yep. And said, if you say another word about my wife, I will end you. And I think probably, you know, on different levels, that was a breakthrough for, for Will because probably that was the first time somebody had the opportunity to hit him and chose not to. And I think that might have been a breakthrough because his, you know, his whole backstory was him getting beaten up. The whole reason that he was there in the first place is because he got in a fight. Um, and here's a guy who is from the same town that he's from, grabs him by the throat, and this this could have been a throwdown. And with him being an adult, he probably would have, could have kicked, because Will's 20. Right. Probably could have kicked the crap and out he, of him. And earlier he talks about lifting. Right. You know, that he's really into, and, and that Sean's really into weightlifting. And so here's a guy that, if he wanted to, could have really done done some damage, and it wouldn't have shocked Will at all. See, that's interesting that that was your take. I That had never occurred to me. I, I always looked at it from the perspective where Will kind of respected this guy because he was around these academics and these intellectuals who were soft. 
right and here for the first time here here was here was a guy from the neighborhood that right. that wasn't going to tolerate it and let's face it that's how his friends would have treated him and i think you know had had the but like i said here was a guy who was abused his entire life and now it didn't he didn't immediately warm up to him because remember there were the uh, the staring, staring sessions, sessions yeah where uh, but Sean recognized the fact that he goes, I can't be the one to talk next. It's got to come from him. And what does he do? He tells a really bad joke about an airplane and the, and the pilot, uh, but it, that was a way of breaking the ice. And from there, they, they finally started to kind of get things going, and then they ended up developing this really cool relationship where, like you said, Sean, that uh, Will ends up counseling him almost as much as Sean counsels Will. Right. With regards to their lives, so uh, you know, I, the, I think that kind of sums up the eventually where the movie gets to is is, is a pretty famous scene where, um, you know, uh, Sean's telling Will that it's not his fault, and then it's like it's like yeah yeah I know well, it's not your fault, I it, it and then it just keeps progressing progressing, and then finally there's this there's this kind of a breakdown, and then that's kind of the end. Um, one of the things that I really liked and you had referenced about um, Ben Affleck's character, Chucky, kind of being the voice of reason, mm-hmm. an uneducated knucklehead who was wise in a lot of ways. And he he has this one speech where he, he talks to Will and Will's being offered all these incredible jobs because he's so intelligent. You know, the, the NSA wants him to work for them and he can have his pick. But he, eh, he doesn't want to do it. He just wants to. He says, "Oh, I don't do this. I want to stay here." He's, you know, Will's talking to Chucky. He's like, "We're going to take our kids to Little League together." And 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 Chucky says, because every morning he comes and he picks Will up. They go to work. They do their construction job every day. He hands him a cup of Dunkin' coffee because Chucky's the only guy with a car. True. And they they all ride together. Yeah. So they he comes up. He gives him the the, the cup of coffee every day. He always knocks on the door. Will comes out, gives him the coffee, and they go on. And Chucky said, he goes, you know the best part of my day? He goes, I go up to your house. He goes, I knock on the door. He goes, and first, he goes, I hope you don't answer, because that means you got out of here. He goes, you're sitting on a lottery ticket. He goes, the rest of us, we have no chance. He goes, but you're squandering it. He goes, you know, the, what would make him happy is if Will just disappeared someday and, and took advantage of that. And eventually, you kind of see that at the end of the movie, where... One day, Chucky goes up to Will's house. He knocks on the door, and nobody comes. And um, first, because he does turn twenty-one during the movie. Yep. And as his gift, they cobble together, you know, this rough-looking car, but it runs. It runs strong. And it's a good car. Yeah, it's a good car. And so they uh, they give him that as his twenty-first birthday present. And finally, Will decides that instead of taking the job, which is what Professor Landau wants him to do. And we, we briefly mentioned Skylar, the girlfriend, but she's having she's got to go back out to the West Coast. She's going to Stanford. She's going, she's going to, to graduate school. school. She's going to yeah. she's going to med school, and so he kind of is at the crossroads. You know, does he stay where he's at? Does he go down and start making a lot of money, or does he follow love? Which is what ultimately what it comes down to, because during their sessions, Sean tells him about the first time that he met his wife and kind of talked about their relationship. Where he gave up the opportunity to see a World Series game, 1975. Game the, six of the, the 1975. The famous Carlton Fisk uh, game where Carlton, for the Red Sox catcher, hits a famous home run. 
And they're, you know, they're talking about going crazy. And you know, Will's like, you must have gone crazy. You're in, the, in there. He goes, no, I wasn't in there. He's like, I gave it my ticket. And so he's like, how could you, how could you do that? And then he tells a story about his wife. And during the story. Oh, I knew. If, you, if you'd seen, you, you, you would have done the same thing. If you, he goes, oh, no, there was no talking me out. He goes, your buddies let you do that. Oh, no, they knew. And, and he said, I got to go see about a girl. Correct. And so they kind of laugh about the fact that it's, you know, grammatically, it's very poor. It's a cheesy line, but that's what he told his friends. That's what Sean, back in 1975, told his friends. Right. I got to go see about a girl. So Will, finally, at the end of the movie, um, you know, he's driving in the car, and Chucky goes to the door, and Will's not there. So he kind of has a little smile on his face, like, okay, he, he's, finally, he did it. he's finally doing it. So now the next scene is him driving to Sean's apartment. Puts a note in his mailbox, drives away. Um, you know, Sean comes down, reads the note. Uh, you know, tell tell him I'm not interested in the job. Um, I got to go see about a girl. And Robin Williams just kind of chuckles and says, "Son of a bitch, he stole my line." Right, right. Uh, and that was to me that was priceless, and it was actually unscripted. Because Robin Williams, when they shot the scene, they shot it about six or seven different times, and every time he said something different, um, and probably three or four of them were scripted and this was one of the unscripted ones and they said that when they finally did that it was like that's perfect i mean there's there's no way to change that right and that was just a great great uh ending to his a part. great end of the movie so that they'll end that little segment of movies that you have now you you have another block and let's see if you can knock off the rest of my top 10 okay so i'm going to move over to comedies yeah and, and which are on my and on my list 90s yeah. comedies there's so many good ones i mean the 90s comedies are are it's probably the longest list that I have. So let's start with honorable mention. Uh, here's a very dark comedy, which is Election with Reese Witherspoon and Matthew Broderick. It's about a, a high school student, and she's the high achiever, and she always runs for president. And Matthew Broderick's character, the teacher, gets sick and tired of her. So he actually conjures up this kid, this popular kid, but he's not very motivated to run against her. And so he ends up rigging the election. But it's a dark comedy. It's very good. Um, American Pie hits my honorable mention. Um, just a fun movie. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, some great moments in that one. Dazed and Confused, same thing. Um, I put Pulp Fiction down as a character or as a comedy. Really? I did. Because, okay. I mean, how, what else do you describe it as? Um, you know, it, it's not a drama. Uh, it, it's kind of, it's all tongue in cheek. That's, that's the whole premise of the movie. Uh, but there's some great performances in that. That made my honorable mention. Not in my top list, which may surprise some people. Uh, honorable mention, Kingpin. Love that movie okay. with yep. Woody Harrelson. I would agree. Uh, Office Space hits my list. Uh, an honorable mention. Uh, Ace Ventura, Pet Detective. Okay, I knew which, you were going to put that on the list. Which um, is very dated. It's yeah. very 90s. Yeah. Uh, but yet, um, you know, Jim Carrey is just wonderful in that movie. I loved it. I remember Scott reciting line after line from that movie back when it was out <laughs> all right here's so here's my top comedies uh there's something about mary okay groundhog day yep the wedding singer mm -hmm. wayne's world okay dumb and dumber happy gilmore and austin powers international man of mystery okay um those uh if you take away the the shawshanks and the goodwill huntings um Probably my comedies would fill my top 10 if I had to put everything in a top 10. Because, uh, yeah, 90s, 90s comedies are, are, you know, some of the best. Okay, so looking at, at my list of 
of comedies that I have on there. There's only one. I, I there there's your one of your honorable mentions is on my list, and then one of your ones on the list. So okay. let's go with my honorable mention, which is Office Space. I know you've always loved that. Yeah, movie. and well, I, it's it's a it's a biography of my life in a lot of ways. <laughs> that I I the, the Peter character, uh, yeah, I I lived that existence for a while, and the the idea of showing up to the office every single day and despising what you did and just having the life sucked out of you was not a lot of fun and you know that's i think there's the reason why that movie is really held up is because there's many people that shared a similar experience to what i did where you get into kind of a you know that on the outside people would say that you have a good job but inside it's just not fulfilling you at all you're in a rut you're in a rut you park in the same parking spot every day and you walk in and you eat your lunch at the same time and you do you have the same chit chat with people you work with and it's just nothing see people used to call that a midlife crisis which happened later in life you know usually when people hit about the age of 40 is when they start to get melancholy about their lives you know we, we we talk a lot about music and um you know there's uh, some albums like we talked about with uh, Bruce Springsteen and, and his Tunnel of Love album, that's that's all about, you know, regret and where how did I get here and what's what what I do with my life and that's kind of office space. It's just happening to a younger guy. He's in his uh, you know, he's in his twenties and he's he's uh he, he's leading in, in his approaching thirty in extremely yeah. an extremely bored life. Um, one of the great, uh, characters in, in the movie or one of the great character names is a guy who has to remind everybody, uh, Michael Bolton. You're right. Uh, right. So. Michael Bolton's one of his coworkers. So, so Peter works at Inatech and his job is because it's 1999, they are writing code, getting ready for Y2K. Mm-hmm. And all you Gen Xers can remember that was a thing because no one understood that the calendar didn't always begin with a 19. Right. So the water company that I was employed by at the time, I uh, was a, uh, a driver, a route salesman for a bottled water company. And if you uh, received water from our company, you could have purchased our Y2K kit, which was six bottles of water, four cases of one gallon spring, and four cases of our half liter water bottles. How long was that supposed to last you? Um, depends on how many people were in your house. Okay. Uh, needless to say, we sold thousands of Y2K kits. And then after Y2K, uh, when we flipped over to 2000 and the world didn't blow up, right? uh, we got thousands of calls of people saying, hey, can we return these? (laughs) To which we said, no, of course not. That with all the cans of tuna fish that people bought. Yes. Our family, on the other hand, we took absolutely no precaution. We decided that eh, nothing's going to happen. So what did we do? We went up to our cabin. We went to the mountains. And play cards. If, if there ever was a place that where the grid was going to go down, it was up there. And sure enough, nothing happened. Well, you know, uh, you know, it didn't hurt to have the occasional hunting rifle up there as right. well, just you know, for a little bit of protection. But uh, yeah, I, rem- I remember at one point, I don't even think we were, we p- paid attention to the countdown to midnight. I think we were playing cards. We were. And we looked up and said, Oh, it's 12.05. Well, we had the radio on, and it, they, they were like doing the Y2K around the world. Mm-hmm. So whenever there was midnight in one of the countries, they were this you know network station was popping in and, and giving an update. And nothing was shutting down, so we figured we were pretty safe. Yep. So anyway. so he's working for Inatech, and he's, he's writing code, as, as with his other uh, 
you know, like Malcolm Bolton's also working there as well. And, you know, he hates the fact that everyone asks him if he knows the singer or related to the singer. I mean, they have the same first name. I don't know why they'd be related. <laughs> but, and, you know, it should be said that Office Space was a movie written and directed by Mike Judge. Right. Who, for those of you who you probably already know, I mean, he was the creator of Beavis and Butthead and also a King of the Hill. Mm-hmm. So he, you know, he branched out into the movie world and and created this and there's they're kind of that sense of humor to the yes. movie as well yeah it, it certainly has a um kind of a i would say it's directed towards us gen xers as we're kind of getting a little bit older as you said peter is approaching 30 which many of us were kind of in our late 20s at that point so right yeah i mean we're if there was ever gonna if it, if it was going to strike a nerve in in many of us it was going to, we're all pretty much around that same age. And, and I think the character Peter was my age. I mean, that, that's kind of, you know, what I think Wiley related as well. It, it's, so they, he goes to this therapist, his, his girlfriend at the time wants him to go to this hypnotherapist because he's having all these issues, this midlife crisis. Well, not midlife, but, but, you know, in his thirties, He's just moody. She wants him to get over it. And in the middle of his hypnotherapy, this quite large hypnotherapist has a heart attack and dies Mm -hmm. while he's under. And as a result, Peter doesn't come out of the trance that he's in. And he literally just goes home and sleeps and sleeps and sleeps. He was supposed to go into work over the weekend. Um, uh, Lomborg, his boss, left him. Played by Gary Cole, a great one of the yeah. great character actors. Okay, yeah. So Peter, I'm gonna need you to uh, come in on Saturday. Um, how's that? How's that work for you? And he does not show up, and he leaves voice message after voice message, and. Um, as a result, oh, oh, go ahead. It was the TPS reports. The TPS reports. That's what he had to. I was trying to think, like, what were the name? What was the name of those reports? The, it was the TPS and, and reports. He was he was constantly being criticized because you know he didn't uh, put something on his TPS reports, and so everybody in the office was reminding him of that. So you know, Peter, he he doesn't like his job, but he likes this girl who is a, a waitress at this one restaurant he goes to uh, is at Klinger's, right? Yes. And so it. It's uh, Jennifer Aniston yes. is plays the character, and it's Joanna. It was is the character's name. They she kind of is the same situation. Doesn't really like what she's doing either. She's a waitress at a at a theme type restaurant where you have to be over the top happy. And the one restaurant she works at, they uh, obsess on buttons. Flare. She, it's, she it's, did, it's pieces right, of flare. She, she has buttons on her suspenders, but they called it flare. Yeah, and she had the minimum number of buttons and the, the minimum flare on her uh, suspenders and but she was being criticized by the manager because you know she wasn't like taking it and and look at what was the name of the guy the other waiter over there that she, he's like look at him over there and, yeah and uh you know because he's he's like you know head to toe flare sure. right so it, but she it wasn't was, very happy it either. was kind of a take on tgi fridays yes so i mean that's kind of what they were spoofing so you know peter finally after he obsesses over this girl. In fact, his buddies would always say, Peter, you, you, you obsess over this girl. Why don't you just go ask her out? Oh, I, I could never do that. But suddenly, after he has this episode with where he doesn't come back right away from this hypnotherapy, he's a different guy, and he just doesn't care anymore. And he has this new attitude, and he walks around the office. He comes in wearing flip-flops. He doesn't wear the suit and tie like he used to. He just kind of blows off the boss. 
He goes over now when he goes out to eat, he goes up and he asks Joanna out on a date and she accepts. Well, keep in mind that before even went to see the therapist, that there was layoffs going on at... Well, the, at, there's rumored layoffs because right. they, they're, they're going to bring in some consultants. They're, the consultants start coming in and... So instead of being so uptight and nervous like everybody else is to have to talk to these guys, like you said, he doesn't care. And so he tells him the truth. Instead of instead of them being angry, they love him for it. He's a young go-getter. Yeah. You know, he comes in and he's like, so how would you describe your day? Well, he goes, you know, it's like I slip in the side door because I come in late every day. I kind of, I just kind of like space out, you know, in front of my computer, look like I'm, I'm working, but I'm not actually working and... And he's like, I figure, I forget how many hour, actual hours of work he actually does in a day. I think it was minutes. I think it was yeah. like, I think it was like 30 minutes. Of actual work that yeah. he does. And so as a result, instead of firing him, he's going to get a promotion. They're like, so, you know, are you, are you just not motivated? And, and it's just funny to see these guys just kind of fawn all over him. And he really could care less. He like walks out of the meeting at one point. Yeah, like, I, I got to go. I got to go, guys. See you later. Yeah. And then he cuts down the cubicle, the wall in this <laughs> cubicle. And, uh, you know, so he obviously, but then towards the end of the movie, they, him and his friends, they kind of come across this opportunity, uh, because Michael Bolton, uh, had came across this program with that, with regards to, he wrote the the program. So the idea, he, he, I forget, what was this, what was his other buddy's name? I forget. It's like an Indian name that I can't really probably pronounce correct anyways, but, uh, Nadib, or I think it's something like that. And, and so he, um, they they actually get laid off. So so Peter, who's been just screwing around, is going to get a promotion, and these two guys who are trying to hold until their jobs are going to get fired. So they decide that they're going to get back at Inatech because Michael has written this program that basically, as they're rounding numbers off, every penny, the fraction that instead of you know does it's got to go somewhere when someone pays something. So they decide that the penny is going to come off, and they're going to put it into an account. After a period, it's going to build up. They're going to have a fair amount of money, but it's going to take a while. They install this program, only instead of taking a while, well, Michael's not very good at math, so he moves the decimal to the wrong place. And I think in like a weekend, they get $300,000. <laughs> yeah. So they, and, that's, and somebody's definitely going to miss that one, they said. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, great movie. You know, you kind of classified as a dark comedy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but like you said, it, it, it hit at the right time for a lot of people, and it's it's a cult classic. It's still something that, that shows up all the time. Well, so. and, and the thing with, with Peter, it's where I think it hit a lot of people our age is, you know, he was kind of sold this idea, you know, you go off and you, you go to college and you get this good job and you work at this career like, you know, your parents had, your, your boomer parents might have worked a job that they didn't like, but they stuck it out for 40, 50 years and they were happy that they did it. Well, Peter wasn't satisfied with that, and I think a lot of Gen Xers can relate to that. Sure, you know, it's all right. You did it, but we don't want to do it. It's if, if this is going to be our life, we're not happy. Ultimately, at the end of the movie, he starts working construction, and he's much happier. Yeah. So, anyways, that's Office Space. That's that's another one that that um, that we both shared interest in. Um, next up on my list that I think you had as well was uh, Groundhog Day. Yes. So Groundhog Day came in, came in number seven on my list. It, um, I, I, this is a, a movie I saw it in the theater when it came out. It, it's, I, I still watch it all the time. You know, it, it's got a Pennsylvania reference to it. It's from, you know, set in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania. You know, the whole movie is based upon a weatherman from Pittsburgh 
that is Bill Murray, uh, Phil, mm-hmm. who is just this terrible human being, very arrogant, which, you know, you and I kind of worked in that world a little bit, and there were people had some attitudes. Oh, absolutely, yeah, some egos. You, you met people like that, and he wasn't even as a, as a over the top obnoxious as some of the people that we've met in yeah. the past. Right, right. Some so. some lower celebrities than what he was portraying definitely were full of themselves, and so that's typical. So here's this guy who's very self centered, and he Phil Connor he has to go and he has, has to do this remote with these Hicks in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania. Because it's very famous in, in Punxsutawney, PA, for the groundhog. Now, he works in Pittsburgh. He does. So he's sent on this task, and he has to go every year, which he loathes. So he, he has to go with a producer and a cameraman. Right. And they do, uh, they do a shot on Groundhog Day. So he insists on being put up at the best spot where the other two have to stay in a hotel downtown. He goes to a very nice bed and breakfast. And so he's, he wants to be treated like, an, like, a, like a celebrity. Uh, even though, but well, regardless, he's he's uh, a very self-centered individual. He is now. His producer is Rita, who's played by the still very lovely Anna McDowell, mm-hmm. uh, and also the cameraman Larry is played by one of the funniest human beings who has ever lived, Chris Elliott. One of the great character actors started out as a writer with Letterman, mm-hmm. and actually, you know, became a regular on Letterman. Just that quirky kind of humor. Uh, he was in one of my favorite movies. There's something about Mary. He also, was, yes, and he, you know, he played Ben Stiller's buddy, uh, who ended up, you know, trying to get married at the very end, like everybody else. Mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, yeah, he had a very kind of downplayed, reserved role in this movie. But uh, you know, every time he every time he opened his mouth, he was funny. So right. So the the idea is he's he's there for Groundhog Day. He goes out. He he does the first day his typical obnoxious self. He rubs everybody the wrong way he big times everyone because he's a celebrity finally he's like uh, i'm getting out of here I, I hate this place and he goes to uh to drive back to pittsburgh only there's a storm and he's not able to leave pittsburgh and he has to go back again to punxsutawney and as a result he wakes up the next day staying at the same place he stayed at and the same sunny and share song comes on again with i got you babe the same uh Radio personalities come in with the exact same lines that they said the day before. And suddenly everything is looking the same to him. He walks out of his room. Everything's the same. Met by the same people, the same conversation. And he's starting to get creeped out by it. And as he continues, he realizes he's living the same day over and over and over and over again. And so I think the brilliance of Harold Ramis, who was the director, and Bill Murray's performance in as Phil Connor in this movie... I think what where you see all the levels that he tries to do because in the beginning to him it's fun. You know, he has fun with it. But over time uh it it never changes. And that it kind of you know, if you're trying to draw uh symmetry to to real life, it's like um you know, the mundane and the, and the over and over, like the Peter in office space where it's the same over and sure. over again, why it's driving him insane. So at one point he goes from enjoying having fun, robbing a bank or, or the, uh, the, the car, the armored car. Um, and this, you know, then he goes to trying to kill himself. So, because he's reached that level of, you know, desperation where he's just, 
he can't he can't deal with this anymore because he's still self centered. Yes, right. So that's the the point is you know he he goes to these points where he'll just eat whatever he wants to eat, and he will, you know, there's a scene in the diner where he's talking to Rita. And he's just stuffing his face and like, aren't you worried about, you know, he's smoking at the same time. And like, aren't you worried, you know, you know, man approaching middle age and, you know, putting on this face like, ah, you know, it won't hurt me. It doesn't affect me. I, I live the same day over and over again. And he, after a while in the movie, he kind of morphs. Well, he calls himself a God in the beginning. Well, as he said, I'm not the God, but I'm probably a God yeah. because he says, I don't die. And I have the same life and it goes on and on and on. There, there was somebody, I guess, a, a super fan of this movie, went back and really calculated hard how long he was stays in the constant day after day. Because at some point in the movie, it will end. When he, he kind of goes through this transformation, where he goes from being this self-centered, and then he actually realizes that it's if he's going to live here, he might as well be this nice guy. And he develops skills. He has this medical training, so he goes around saving people. He becomes gets musical talent. Anyway, so they calculate that probably he was in there between 30 and 40 years of repeating the same day over and over oh, again. Wow. And they think based on the viewing of the movie, that's 34 years. I, I don't know how they came up with that, huh. but that was a number that I saw out okay. there. So then they say, you know, based on how long it takes you to develop skills. Sure. I think they were basing that on because, you know, he does learn to play the piano really well. And he's referred to by the women as Doctor Connor, right? Right, yeah. and, he, and he's he, and he becomes because if you're going to live this mundane life every well, I shouldn't say mundane. If you're going to have the same day all the time, it's much more enjoyable to interact with people and be a nice person and and do things for other people. He would there's this boy that would fall out of a tree at the same time every day, and every time he catch him, and he'd say, "You didn't thank me yesterday, and you won't thank me tomorrow." He goes, "I'll be here." You know, but it's like, maybe, <laughs> but, but it's like now he's doing things for other people. Yep. Phil, Phil Connors, Ned, 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 Ned Meyer, Ned Ryerson, or Ryerson, the yeah. needle nose, yeah. needle nose, Ned, right. And who he buys uh, insurance from. You try to ask your state, your, your sister Stacy to the prom and you said, no, uh, I seem to remember uh, Ned Ryerson. Ned Ryerson was, was a, a, an awesome character. And you know, that's what, one of the things I think makes this movie funny is that there's these quirky characters. And and I did hear that this was the last movie that Howard Ramis and Bill Murray ever did together. They they collaborated. If many of you will remember Harold Ramis was in Stripes with mm-hmm. Bill Murray. He they were in Ghostbusters together. And so they had kind of this successful run. This was an incredibly successful film. However, Bill Murray and Harold Ramis butted heads because Harold Ramis wanted it to be funny and keep some gags in there. And it's funny, and that's kind of how you had it on your list as a comedy. Right. Bill Murray kind of saw it the way I'm describing it right now, where it's this philosophical uh, change in him over time. And he that's the, that is the part of the movie he wanted to focus on, was this transformation from being self-centered, conceited, and a jerk to this really nice guy by the end of the movie. Right, and <clears throat> I think you see that in some of his characters in, in his later movies that, that came after this where he has played more of a straight character as opposed to somebody that is in a comedy. I did label this as a comedy, even though, uh, you know, twisted as it was. But the premise of it, we, we, we started this particular episode off by saying what draws us to a movie. And one of the things we always like to is, is, is it uh, conventional or is it different? This one was different. 
just because of the story itself and how here's here's a guy who's reliving the same day over and over and over again and um you know the brilliance of an actor like bill murray uh you know gives you gives you the the levels of emotion uh with a character like that you know he's not a, he's not the guy that's going to necessarily shed tears on camera but you can kind of see much like a tom hanks where you know he he goes from one place to another uh, on an emotional level and he certainly does in the movie where he's believable as a jerk in the beginning and he's believable as a nice guy at the end and and i think that's what you know you want to see in a movie i saw this movie the first time and liked it as a comedy Mm-hmm. I it was the jokes you know it, it was you talk about we talked about Chris Elliott with his funny little lines I, I loved all that that's what initially kind of hooked me as I keep coming back to the movie it is for that transformation mm-hmm. so I, I think that's why for me it has stood up over a lot of other comedies I, I don't know if there's anything else on your list um, I don't have anything other than that um, other than those two now do you have any other categories that, that you had well, I'll, I'll just briefly go through animated. Um, I think these three animated movies stand head and shoulders above anything else that came out, and that is Toy Story, Beauty and the Beast, and The Lion King uh, okay. for, for animated movies. Don't have an honorable mention uh, because those are probably the three that, that I remember from that decade. Uh, I did have a dramedy category, so it's a drama slash comedy, or you want to call it a rom com, romantic comedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's let's probably call it a rom com. Okay. So my honorable mention was uh, Jack Nicholson in As Good as It Gets. It's a good movie. Uh, um, Hugh Grant in Notting Hill. Hugh Grant and Julia Roberts enjoyed mm-hmm. that movie quite a bit. Julia Roberts in My Best Friend's Wedding with Dermot Mulroney where she plays uh, you know, the food critic that falls in love with her. It's, it's, it's a fun movie. My, my wife Amy loved this movie, still does, where she plays a food critic. Uh, they're, they're both writers, but they've kind of led separate. They're, they were best friends. They still are, but they l- work across the country, so they occasionally will meet up and, and catch up. So during one of these absences, he calls her and says, I need to talk to you right away because years before they had made a bet that by such and such a birthday, if they hadn't fallen in love with somebody else, they were going to marry each other. Well, she always talked about this because secretly she loved him, but she could never get herself to admit it to him. And he, he always had a thing for her, but she always pushed him away. So he, he kind of surprises her with this phone call. So she thinks this is what it's about, all right, that they've now reached this, and he's going to hold her up, uh, you know, hold her to this agreement that they made. Well, no, it turns out he met somebody else, Kimmy, played by Cameron Diaz, and uh, he's fallen in love, and he's going to get married. And this hits her like a ton of bricks. And then she realizes, yes, that she does love him. And so she agrees to go to the wedding, but not to uh, support him, but to break up the engagement. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 a fun movie. There's, there's a lot of, um, you know, uh, Julia Roberts in the 90s was you know, good actress. Sure. Not, not uh, difficult on the eyes at all. Very pretty woman, Mm -hmm. uh, which is also on my list here for rom-coms, but uh, you know, uh, she did a great job in this movie and so did Dermot Mulroney, very believable as kind of the, you know, kind of the John Wayne, quiet, the handsome type of guy. Mm -hmm. And uh, Cameron Diaz did a great job as Kimmy. So it was, it was a fun movie. And at the very end, Julie Roberts doesn't get the guy. Uh, Kimmy gets the guy, but everybody gets along at the end. So there's your rom-com. Oh, how sweet. All right. So 
next step up I for a rom-com, Jerry Maguire, Tom Cruise. Like Hugh Grant again, Four Weddings and a Funeral. I like that movie. Love that movie. Yeah. Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan, Sleepless in Seattle. Sure. Richard Gere and Julia Roberts, Pretty Woman. And here's one, you know, you consider it a rom, I wouldn't say it a romantic comedy. Uh, not necessarily between a, a guy loving a girl, although a guy loves a girl, but Father of the Bride, Steve Martin. I thought of that one. I love that movie. Sure. We saw that one uh, in the movie theater when it came out. And it is, it's one of my favorite movies. It's just such a, it, and the funny thing is when I saw the movie, I wasn't married. Um, but yet as a dad who, you know, this past year had to walk my daughter down the aisle and say, you know, basically goodbye to her as she goes with her husband now. Um, I identify with this more movie more now than I did back when I saw it in the movie theater. Uh, just a great movie. It was a remake of a Spencer Tracy movie in the 1950s. And, but they did a, they did a great job. And there's, uh, you know, Martin Short's in the movie, uh, Eugene Levy's in the movie. So there's just some, there's some great, uh, there's some great characters or no, Eugene Levy's in Father of the Bride too. I'm sorry. I, I, I apologize for that. But, um, you know, so the dad and his daughter is saying goodbye from a dad to saying goodbye to his daughter. She goes on, you know, he acknowledges that she's now an adult and she's going to live her own life. So one of my favorites. Uh, but that was, that was my list for uh, romantic comedies. I don't have any romantic comedies on my list. No? Okay. Uh, none. I mean, I, I can appreciate them. Sure. Uh, I mean, everything you rattled off there. Is, I mean, I think I've seen most everything you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. And, and I, 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 I like most of the, most all of them, you know, some more than others. Uh, I mean, they, uh, the, the, um, did you, you had four weddings and a funeral, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that was mentioned. I, I like that movie quite that a was, bit. That was Hugh Grant and also yeah. Andy McDowell was sure. in that movie. Yeah. Um, it was uh, primarily a, uh, a British movie. It was, it was very British. Had, had very a much lot, a British sense of humor to and it. I, and, uh, you know, you and I, admit, probably many of you Gen Xers, we were very interested in English humor back in the 80s. And yeah. it, was, it was a little bit presented to us more, I think more so than maybe some other generations, but... We loved Monty Python. Absolutely. We loved The Young Ones, which was shown on MTV. Correct. We watched that as well. Uh, you know, we, we liked we, British humor. We loved Benny Hill. Benny Hill yeah. was one of our favorite shows. So we, we, we certainly thought it was, but this was really the first time that we saw, got to see Hugh Grant in a, uh, in a starring role. And essentially what the movie is about is it's this group of friends that, they're all single, but they're it's it's kind of like, kind of like their family. They're not well. Uh, Hugh Grant has a sister, so it's kind of this loosely based family. There's there's a brother and sister that are part of it. There's uh, there's a, a woman who ends up professing her love for for Hugh uh, at the end of the movie, although they don't get together. There's a gay couple, uh, but they're all friends and they all hang out together. One guy's rich. One guy, you know, it's, it's like all these different types of people. And as the, the, the group of friends is bigger at the beginning of the movie and four weddings and a funeral is exactly what happens. There's four different weddings mm-hmm. and there's a funeral. So you see this group of friends sort of disperse as the movie goes along and people now they're, they're starting to get married. They're having families. They're going their separate ways. And um, so that's kind of the whole premise, premise of the movie. And throughout this is Hugh Grant's character is 
essentially trying to find love. You know, he left a woman at the aisle. Uh, he ends up seeing this American woman that he falls in love with, and they kind of have this back and forth thing, but she's married to somebody else. And so he kind of resigns himself to the fact that I need to move on in life. And then she comes back into his life and uh, the funeral is the um, one of the one of the friends in the group dies. Right. Yep. So it's just uh, you know there's there's some humor in it. There's some heart. Uh, I really did enjoy that movie. No, as well. very good. So those are your romantic comedies. Any other categories? Nope, that's it. Okay. They, they, all right. So I'll, I'll I'll go back to my list, and um, I I maybe you said it. Maybe I missed it. Uh, uh, did you have Saving Private Ryan? I did not. Okay, so that actually was on my list at number eight. You know, we talked about it when we we did our, our Tom Hanks episode, but you know, just kind of refresh what what Saving Private Ryan was about. You know, it was about Tom Hanks playing Captain Miller. You know, he's he's leading um, soldiers that are trying to find James Francis Ryan, who it, it's it, his it believes he's the he has four brothers. They're, he's the only one that is believed to be alive. So. They don't want to leave his mother with, you know, without any of her sons. So the idea is we're gonna we're gonna go out and save him. And and the whole movie is kind of based on them going out and trying to find uh, this private Ryan, and all the the action that they that they experienced uh, in war. And it was it was kind of this the the way that they could tell the story of the D Day invasion, which was. Like I said, not to rehash what we've already talked about. You know, you can go back and listen to our Tom Hanks episode to talk about Saving Private Ryan. But the beach scene when they're storming the beaches there at Normandy, for me, this movie is on the list for that reason. Okay. And and I think it's probably because you know, as I mentioned in that episode, that I went there and was able to kind of visualize it. it it's I think that's one of the best scenes in movie history. I, I've I've heard like a a World War II historian say it's not a hundred percent accurate. The way they portrayed it, they say it's very accurate in portraying what it would have felt like to be a soldier. That some of the way the the weapons were positioned mm-hmm. and how the the weapons were used, like some of the guns, like the German guns, they said they they were firing way too rapid for real life because in in real life that would have overheated the guns and they could not have fired that many rounds. But it's a way to you know kind of paint that this chaos that's going on uh, with Saving Private Ryan. So. You know, just, just a, a great movie. I mean, Tom Sizemore does a great has a great job, and the Vin Diesel does a good job. Uh, you know, one, wonderful movie. Well, I I certainly agree with you. I think it is one of the best shot, and I think we even talked about that. It's one of the best shot scenes I can remember that has wartime footage, which is probably why I can't go back and watch it too many times. Yeah, because it. I think it's too realistic. This was a movie that that went on and off my list many times for that reason. So everything else on my list, I have viewed many, 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 many times. I have only viewed Saving Private Ryan a couple times because of what you're describing. I think I've seen it three times. Yeah. Whereas everything else is dozens and possibly hundreds of times. So there's another movie that did not make my list. It's in my honorable mentions. uh, Is a movie that I've seen once. Schindler's List. Okay, I, I wondered if you were going to mention it. It's it's a it's such a brilliant movie, but it it's disturbing. Both Spielberg movies, and yeah, yeah they're the Schindler's it's hard, List. For it's me hard, is, hard, is, both are hard to watch. Hard to watch. Yeah, especially yeah. Schindler's List. It's it's something that um, you know is very important. You know, it's Oscar Schindler. He um, 
he, he goes to Germany from, from Poland. He's going to make all this money. He has this factory. He employs these Jews. He, he joins the Nazi party. And uh, over time, he comes from having the Jews working for him, making him money, where he transforms. And he becomes the protector of the Jews. And he keeps this factory running in many ways to preserve their lives. And whenever the, uh, you know, the Germans, or the, whether it was the Nazis or whoever, wanted to do away with any of the Jews there, he'd say, well, they're essential to me. Well, why do you need children? Well, their small little fingers are essential for getting in and, and for the casings of the bullets. And I need, he didn't need them, but it was a way for him to have a front to, uh, to save their lives. And it's, like I said, once, maybe twice. I think I'd have seen it twice. It, it, it's just such a, a gripping movie. I, I think it may be the best movie, but it's, I, it, you know, once again, I, I couldn't put it on my favorite list just because I, I haven't watched it enough times. Uh, the other movie that is on my list, came in at number four. A sports movie. Kind of surprised it's not on your list. And it'd be Rudy. True. Yeah. Actually, yeah. you know, it's funny because I, I thought we'd have a couple in common. I thought Rudy would be the one that you and I both would have on there. You know, if you would have asked me that probably 10 years ago, I would have absolutely agreed with you. It, Rudy's one of those that kind of fell off my radar. And, it, and, and I, you know, love that movie. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it is. It is one of my favorite sports movies. Of True all time. story of uh, of Rudy Riddicker, you know, from uh, Juliet, Illinois, who always, uh, you know, dreamed of going and playing at Notre Dame. He grew up in a family that just loved Notre Dame. His dad would always park in front of the television on a Saturday and and watch the national broadcast that uh, you know putting the Notre Dame uh, games on. Rudy, he was that that uh, coach's dream in high school. He undersized guy who just had a lot of heart and played tough, but didn't have the physical abilities, wasn't necessarily considered a bright kid. He's in high school. They have a, a bus getting together of students to go over to visit Notre Dame. He decides he wants to go on the bus. Well, they don't let him on the bus because these are only for kids that are really going to college. <laughs> which, um, yeah, which really hit home for me as well because uh, when I was a senior in high school, my guidance counselor, who met with every student, at the end of their senior year, not necessarily to discuss, uh, kind of, I guess, what are you going to do with your life kind of thing. And he said to me, well, you know, Scott, some people aren't meant to go to college. <laughs> and I took that as one of the biggest slaps in the faces I've ever received in my life. Yeah. Now, in his defense, I didn't necessarily show myself to be a, a good student, and I was not. Uh, but... I actually played that scene uh, in Rudy in my when I went back to college at the age of 33. When I went to, uh, I was taking a history class and we were talking about 20th century and we got to play like we got to we got to show movie clips or, or something. We got to make a presentation. So my presentation was the scene from Rudy mm -hmm. where he is walking with his girlfriend and she wants him to buy a house and he's just like I, you know. And then his buddy dies. His best friend dies at the plant. Correct. Frank. And then, no, Frank was his brother. And then he can't, uh, you know, Rudy's life at that point completely changes. He just realizes he doesn't want to get stuck being a Rudiger because his dad gives him, gives him a speech about, uh, you know, being a Rudiger is, 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 a, is a good life. You know, my dad, um, you know, he left the family and he walked away and, uh, so his friend dies, and he always had this dream of going to Notre Dame, and he finally it's like his I, friend was Pete. Pete, 
Pete. Yeah. yeah. And I, he goes, I, you know, he basically says, and, I can't live this and, life anymore. And Pete was the one person that supported him. Yes. You know, his, his, his girlfriend wanted him to give up this dream and let's settle down. Let's, let's, let's buy a house. Let's, you know, let's, let's get married. Let's work at the steel mill and provide just like your father, just like your brother. You know, it's a good job. Kind of similar. We're talking about office space yeah. in a way. So if you notice folks, there's a theme going through <laughs> my movies. So anyway, I, I played that clip where he goes all the way through where he travels out to South Bend. And then he, he meets with, um, you know, the priest at mm-hmm. the church there. And I made my professor cry because he saw that, he saw, uh, you know, that saw that scene. And I told the story to, to my classmates about how the guidance counselor, the guidance counselor yeah. basically told me you're, you're not, you know, you don't have what it takes to go to college. And, um, you know, it took me a while to get back there at 33, but that was a, a kind of a recurring theme that I kept in my brain as I was you know, going through uh, school and working at the same time and, you know, had four kids. Uh, you know, so he motivated me in ways that he didn't realize, uh, which as with Rudy, uh, you know, he was able to meet some people along the way to, cause there were times where he was kind of down sure, and, and may have walked away Wanted from to it, quit. but he did have, fortunately in the movie, he had some friends that were able to kind of kind of push him through. Right. So the, the, the movie, I mean, it's centered around football. It's about Notre Dame football, but it, it applies to a lot of life. And they, you will always have people out there telling you, you can't do it. You're not good enough. Give up on your dream. You're crazy. Settle. And it, that, that is true. That you, you, will, you will encounter that in life so much. And it's, if you, anytime anybody goes against the grain and wants to do something that's outside of uh, of the ordinary, they're going to get criticized. You know, there. You know, Rudy finally decides when his buddy Pete dies, he's just going to do it. That's it. He doesn't. He doesn't want to end up in the steel mill like the rest of his family. So he he takes off and he goes. He goes off, but he doesn't get into Notre Dame because his grades aren't good enough. And so he ends up going to Holy Cross, which is kind of a sister school, junior college. Uh, and so he's working on his grades. But he kind of hangs out at Notre Dame, and he has got he's got because his buddy Pete bought him this Notre Dame jacket. So he walks around the Notre Dame campus. He's always there, and he he encounters um, uh, this guy named D Bob. So D Bob is is this this guy who's kind of geeky. It's just John Favreau in, yes. in in his first major role when he's quite huge. You know he he ends up losing a lot of weight later on, but in this movie is D Bob. He, he's big. Yeah, and very young too. And, and very young, he probably you know is you know about appropriate for for college age, graduate school age, and so D. Bob, he has no game with the girls, and he's really smart. But here's this Rudy who is this kind of I'll just do whatever, I don't care. He he can walk up and talk to anybody, and and they agree to kind of exchange. He, he, Rudy will help D-Bob with girls if D-Bob will help tutor him in school. Well, Rudy, at this point in his life, is is older than everybody that he's going sure. to school with because he not only was he working at the mill when he decided to go to Notre Dame, but prior to that, and they don't talk about it in the movie, but in real life, uh, Rudy Rudiger actually uh, served a tour in the military before he even came back to Joliet and started working. So you're probably talking about a guy who's at least 24, 25 at this point. Which, you know, and, and Scott and I can relate to this because both of us went back to college when we were much, much older. Yes. So, it, you know, it's it does take some type of willing to 
tune out those who are naysayers and say, you know, that's just not the way it's done. You're, you're, it's passed you by. And so that's, you know, Rudy, not only did he want to go back to school, but he wanted to go play football at Notre Dame, one of the most prestigious and, and best programs in the country, especially at that time. Right, sure. They were a perennial national championship contender, coached by Eric Parsegian, who had already won, uh, you know, a national championship with the Fighting Irish. So the, the Notre Dame nationally was a big deal. And that's why it was so important for him to play for Notre Dame but I think you know, almost as important is it was something he dreamed about as a kid, and he he had the attitude to give it everything that he had, no matter what. So he he stays very focused on this dream, which unlike in real life, he just couldn't focus on uh, being working at the plant. He couldn't focus on getting married, but he could focus on this dream of of um, you know not only graduating from Notre Dame, but really being the first Rudiger to make it that far in education, which, you know, college education now doesn't have quite the uh, clout or, you know, the importance or it's not like you're finishing the, the finish line, maybe like it did in the seventies, because most of us, when we graduated from high school, most of us Gen Xers, at least in, in here, in the, uh, you know, the metropolis of Nestville, Pennsylvania. Largest podcast in Nestville, by the way. That's what I heard. Yeah. Yeah. But a lot of us didn't go to college. A lot of us worked when we graduated. And in our dad's generation, a lot of people didn't even get that far. They didn't get to graduate because they had to work before. Right. So college in the 70s, at this point, 1975, uh, it was a big deal. It was. And especially a school like Notre Dame, which is a hard school to get into. I mean, it, it's always been difficult so rudy he goes to holy cross junior college he he actually does well enough with the help of d bob to improve his grades and he is able to get into notre dame and he goes out for the football team now obviously you know he's not this a scholarship athlete so he is able to kind of be part of the practice squad which is they're glorified tackling dummies in a lot of way but Rudy just loves getting the uniform on, and he goes out, and he thinks it believe, really believes that he's part of the team, and he's trying as hard as he can. He's he's going full out. In fact, he gets criticized by one of the players because he's he's just going full bore, and they're like, "Hey, you know, take it easy in here. You know, this is just practice. You're making us look bad." Yeah, that's what he was. Getting. And he's like, if, "If I don't do my job, you won't do your job on Saturdays." And important to note as well that the position that they put him at was defensive end, and he was little. He was the smallest player. In the whole program. Sure. So here's the smallest player getting beaten up every day at practice. Right. But he, uh, he, it was important to him to be a part of the team. But now he's running into a little bit of an issue because he's in Notre Dame. He's on the practice team. Uh, his family doesn't believe him when he tells Correct. him. Right. So it's like, how can I prove to them? that I am a part of the Notre Dame football program. Right. So he goes up to Era, uh, Persigian, the head coach, and he, he says, I'd like to dress for a game. At this point, he's a junior. He's a junior, and Era says, sure. He, he agrees to do it. Says, you've earned it. You've earned it. You know, all the players, you know, they really respect him. They like him. He just wants to dress. He just wants to run out through the tunnel. Keep in mind that there's a, a pretty poignant scene before this whole thing happens where, as, as you were talking talking about the players getting mad at him for going all out in practice, Vince Vaughn plays this uh, player named O'Hara, mm -hmm. and I believe it's Jamie O'Hara, 
all he was like a high school all-american he was a high school all-american and he's loafing around in practice and at one point uh you know rudy tackles him he gets mad and starts a fight with rudy in practice and Parsegian rips into him and not only uh, tells him to get off the field, but he demotes him. So now Jamie O'Hara is no longer even a part of the regular rotation. He's essentially a practice player too. And uh, so he goes from hating Rudy at this point to being actually one of his champions at the end of the movie. Right. So Era makes his promise. says, sure, I'll let you dress. However, Era retires before Rudy's senior year, and they bring in Dan Devine, who was coming in from the pros. Green Bay, Packers. Green Bay Packers, and he could have cared less what Era had said to Rudy. There was no way Rudy was going to see the field. Which I've read, you know, different articles about the movie itself, and Dan Devine will tell you that it's a much different story. Okay. Uh, according to Dan Devine, the real person, Dan Devine, that he actually fully supported uh, Rudiger, Dan, you know, Rudy to, to actually participate, you know, get on the field. And play in the game, uh, he said that was just for movie effect. You know that uh, that made it that much harder for him to uh, to get on the. He said, but actually, in reality, I was quite supportive of him. Well, that, being that's good. So, so, but anyways, at at the end of the movie, you know, Rudy is is told that he's going to get to play. So his his dad and his brother take the train in. They 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 from Juliet, Illinois to Notre Dame. They go to the game. His buddy D Bob, who is going off to uh, to graduate school. I think it may be law school. He's coming back. He's got his girlfriend. They're returning. You know, everyone comes to see Rudy. Rudy runs out through the tunnel. At the end of the game, Rudy, uh, he hasn't played. And the fans start chanting for Rudy. Well, before we before they even get to, he actually worked as part of the groundskeeping He crew. did. And he ends up, his boss, who is really hard on him, mm-hmm. uh, works him very hard. There's a great scene where Rudy finds out that he doesn't get to go to the last game, so he quits. Can't participate in the last game. The, the players tried to convince Devine that he that he should be out there. He's not on the list. He quits the team. He's like, "What's the point?" So there's a great there's a great scene where he is, uh, you know, out there at the tunnel, standing at the football field, and uh, you know his former boss basically rips into him and said. Look how far you've come. Where you know this isn't you know this isn't the finish line. You're going to graduate with a degree from the from the University of Notre Dame. And Rudy's basically, like, well, why do you care? And as he turns out, he was a player who quit the team because he thought he was being treated improperly because he was black. Right. Right. So he decides to uh, you know he quit and he said not a day goes by that I don't regret that decision. So he's basically urging Rudy to get back in with the team. And see through what you know what he started, what right? he started, which he's at, you know he's very close to achieving. Right. So they now you said Dan Devine said he supported this. The the famous scene where all the players come in and put their jerseys on Devine's desk. That basically, if Rudy doesn't play, they're they're just going to turn on their jerseys. Yeah, Did that was that didn't happen. That was pure movie <laughs> okay. magic. Movie yeah. magic. Yeah. Okay. So Rudy finally gets on the field. Oh, good. Although you know when you when you said about. At, he's there on the sideline, but he has yet to get into the game. Right. The chant did actually happen. So. Now, now in the movie, the way they have it is that the Vince Vaughn character, Jimmy O'Hara, uh, kind of defies orders so that instead of running out the clock, 
He's a, they, they, do they score? Is that how it happens? He, Instead of running, basically running into the pile yeah. so the clock will he keep moving. He throws like a touchdown. He throws pass. a bomb down yeah. the field and they score a touchdown. And as a result, now there's a little extra time. The defense, because Rudy's playing defensive line, there's the chance for them to get back out there. So with seconds left, Devine agrees, gives into the chance of the crowd, and Rudy comes into the game. So he goes in on special teams first. And um, so after they, they do the kickoff, Rudy famously looks over to his position coach and says, what do I do? And he says, stay there, stay there. So then they, they line him up. He lines up at uh, right defensive end. And then um, Georgia Tech, for some reason, snaps the ball and is throwing a pass, even though they're losing 20-3 to with just seconds left in the game. But it actually did happen, and Rudy did sack the quarterback. And that was the last play. And at the very end of the movie, the uh, you know his teammates put him on their shoulders and Ride them off, and as the movie uh, ends, it just has the script, which I think is great, where it says, since since 1975, no other Notre Dame player has ever been carried off the field. And that was the, um, you know, the scene in the movie. And then it also shows the actual picture of Rudy on the sideline mm-hmm. smiling at the camera. For uh, It was the real-life shot, so yeah. yeah. How did that movie not make your list? <laughs> But it should make your list at, at home, folks. So that that you know, and I'll throw out a couple honorable mentions that I had. Sure. Since Scott threw some out, uh, the the next it, this is a, another you know thinking about Rudy reminded me of this movie. The, it's a it's a John Favreau Vince Vaughn movie. It's Swingers, and it is basically John Favreau tells the story that after he was in Rudy and it's his first big role, and he said you know he's he's up there listed as one of the main actors. He thought he made it. He didn't get any work. He said he went back to Los Angeles. He he kind of made the mistake of losing 75 pounds. So he had this character, which is kind of this roly-poly guy, D-Bob, mm-hmm. and now he lost all this weight, and he's just kind of nothing. So he said the phone wasn't ringing at all. And he's sitting around with all his unemployed actor buddies. This movie was written in 1994. So, you know, kind of mid-20s. And he, he, he writes it with every one of the characters that are in the movie in mind. So Vince Vaughn is his buddy because you know right. he knows him from Rudy, and then they hang out together. And so he writes the the character Trent for Vince Vaughn, and he creates this this movie. And it's a little bit of a, a Sly Stallone situation where studios kind of liked the script, but they didn't necessarily want him in it, and they didn't see the direction. And and Favreau said he knew this was kind of where he had to draw his line, and. He kind of said, here, I'll tell you what, no one's getting this movie. They're not doing it the way I envision it. So he literally brought all these actors that you see in the movie that were his friends, and mm-hmm. he had written the parts about them. And they acted out scenes from the movie in front of the, the executives, and then they got it. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a good story. Um, and I really liked the movie, except Trent. <laughs> I didn't like Trent. <laughs> Come on, Trent was money. And he called everybody baby. Beautiful babies. I, I just found him so annoying. <laughs> it was there, there was it was a moment. It was a moment in the mid nineties where there was kind of that that big band revival, uh-huh. kind of that swinger, the cigars, the cocktail bars, big bad voodoo, big bad voodoo daddy. Yep. It, it, I, you and me in the bottle makes three. I you know I kind of liked that whole little thing that was happening was at cool. the time and swingers definitely fit into that so that it is it that is definitely a gen x movie absolutely yeah where it with you being a little bit younger i don't know 
what you if you would have liked it as much as well, I did? Well, I, I, I liked it. Um, there were two movies that came out pretty much very close to each other on different ends of the spectrum. You had Swingers on one side, you had Reality Bites on the other, okay. which was directed by Ben Stiller mm -hmm. and had Winona Ryder in yep. it. So um, I liked the movie when it came out. It didn't stand the test of time for me. It's very dated. I agree. It's a very 90s movie, just like Swingers. Swingers to me was very much to that Absolutely. essence of that moment. 100%. That's why I didn't make my list. Okay. It, it It's something that it, it's a capsule. It's a time capsule in where you go back and you want to know what life was like in that time. It was written in 1994. It came out in 1996. And, and John Favreau said that that was the scene that was happening in uh, Los Angeles and San Francisco. But by 1996, the movement had gone across the country. Mm -hmm. You know, we had talked about in one of our other episodes about when Guns N' Roses came out with Appetite for Destruction. Back then, pre-internet, that's kind of how things happen. They, you'd have the slow movement. Saturday Night Fever was the same way. The movie caused the disco revolution for a couple of years. Swingers kind of hit when that was happening at the rest of the country by two years later. Right. So that, that was a movie that, that, that I thought was worth mentioning. Also, uh, Gross Point Blank. I enjoyed that John movie. John Cusack is, yeah. is a movie I do go back to time and time again. Very dark comedy. Dark, John Cusack. Uh, Dan Aykroyd was great. Dan Aykroyd is great in that movie. He's Martin uh, Martin Gross. He he is uh, he's a, a killer for hire. But he decides to go back to his 10-year high school reunion. Well, again, he's, he's kind of at a crossroads in life. He's, once again, like I said, there's a theme, <laughs> it seems like, with the movies that I like. Many of us Gen Xers <laughs> were crossing a lot of roads in the 90s. <laughs> That's right. The 80s, it seemed a little bit, little, the, the road was more straight and narrow. 90s, uh, you could have gone one way or the other. <laughs> right, right. So he's this trained killer. He, you know, he's an assassin for hire. He's, he's rethinking what he wants to do in life. He remembers his, uh, his, his girlfriend from high school. He decides to go back. Uh, it's, it, it's a funny movie with, with Scott Sid, with Dan Aykroyd being in the movie. Uh, just an entertaining movie. And Joan Cusack uh, is in it as well, playing his assistant. Correct, correct. Uh, and she's very funny in it, She's too. very funny. So that's a good movie. I, I highly recommend it. And then finally, the last movie that you didn't mention uh, that's on my list would be My Cousin Vinny. It, it's, um, I think it stands the test of time. It's um, um, very accurate in portraying the law and what it's like to be in a courtroom. You know, for those uh, you know who don't remember, you know, um, uh, Ralph Macchio's character is... Uh, you know, from New York, he's they're they're traveling through the South. They they get accused for murder. You know, he's he's got nowhere else to turn. So you know, he's got a cousin who's uh, from you know, he's Brooklyn, I think, and mm -hmm. um, just past the bar after like six tries, and he goes down there, has no clue because he'd been you know working as a mechanic and this also is first trial, first trial. But he's basically been doing some insurance uh, issues, but hadn't gone to court yet. Knock on wood, you know, and he's going to represent. Um, um, uh, you know his, his cousin and try to get him off uh, for murder uh, marissa tomei is in the movie she does a great job she's really funny yes um yeah and marissa tomei is uh one of one of my favorite uh, looking actresses mm -hmm. of all time so uh, marissa tomei Alyssa milano yeah you kind of get the you kind of get the vibe there, yeah absolutely so. so it that can't recommend that movie enough it's I, I don't own a lot of movies i tend to just watch them on demand but i actually own that movie yeah and and you're right i i do enjoy that I enjoy my cousin Vinny a lot. Um, Pesci's great in it because 
he is, you think of a lot of movies where he's a tough guy. He's funny, right? He's very funny, and he's and he's great as Vinny, and uh, in the job that he does. And there's so many moments in in the movie, like where he's in the courtroom, and he had to buy a suit because the first one got messed up. So they, they end up buying a suit at like an antique store. Mm-hmm. So he looks like he's from like the 19th century, and and the judge who's played by Herman Munster from Correct. the Munsters. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's just there's so many charming moments in it, and um, yeah, it's it. You're right; it does stand up over time, and yeah, I I enjoy that movie as well. Actually, when I was coming up with my list, I almost put that on my list instead of Saving Private Ryan. When I was, you know, going to go back to as using the criteria that I came up with was movies that I I enjoy enough that I keep watching. There's the list that you ran off. I, I like probably everything on that list there might be one or two that i'd be like eh, okay there was there was nothing you mentioned that i hated uh, I, i'm pretty sure i've seen everyone and, and you know and enjoyed them good so but for me i'll, I'll just run down my list so uh, okay. you know kind of sum up what what i had and that was number 10 was terminator 2 judgment day number nine was the matrix number eight was saving private ryan although it could have been swapped out with my cousin Vinny. number seven was groundhog day number six dances with wolves office space come in at number five uh, the Great Sports Movie, Rudy, was number four. Goodfellas was number three. Shawshank Redemption, number two. And number one was Good Will Hunting. And I'll just, uh, some of the ones that we talked about here in this particular episode that I'll <clears throat> mention are uh, The the Fugitive, Speed, Braveheart, and The Matrix, Unforgiven, Dances with Wolves, Goodfellas, The Sixth Sense, Good Will Hunting, The Shawshank Redemption, uh, Groundhog Day, and... Uh, we also talked about four weddings and a funeral, um, just to name a few off of off of this list. But I think we can. Sean and I would both agree that I think in terms of movie making, that overall the '90s movies uh, were probably for for us in the '70s, '80s, and '90s were our favorite decade of movies. Would be the '90s. It, I, I think so. It truly was and a great time for movies. You know, we've we've talked about it before that the '80s was a great time for music. And but for me, the the '90s, just an amazing time uh, to watch these movies, which I can keep going back and watching over and over again. They, it, you know, we, we talked about swingers. Maybe that was set in in a moment, but for the most part, you have these movies where things I haven't even mentioned on the list, like Reservoir Dogs. I mean, I really like Quentin Tarantino, mm-hmm. and I didn't even have a movie on the list. You know, the Kill Bill movies, and right. I, I. Jackie Brown was a movie I've seen so many times, and it's not on my list, but I think they really stand up well. So I I, I think we'll come back to the 90s again. Maybe we'll tease out the genres a little bit. Sure. And, uh, and you know, maybe, uh, you know, hit up some of the directors that we, we didn't mention, uh, you know, like the Tarantinos. That, I mean, you did with Pulp Fiction, but... That, you know, we can go even deeper in that. But anyways, I that kind of sums up what, with this episode where we touch on our favorite uh, movies of the 90s. So for our listeners, what are your favorites? What what, what Do you agree with our list? Do you, do you think we're crazy? I'm sure. And as we always say, there's never a right or wrong. Uh, our list does not, uh, we're not competing with Rolling Stone no. or, or anybody else out there that says this is the movie that you have to watch. Obviously, Everybody has their favorites. Your top 10, Sean, is going to be slightly different from my top 10. My wife's top 10. My kid's top. You know, it's, everybody's going to have their own opinions on on what movies they found to be their favorites. But hopefully we touched on some movies that everybody here enjoyed. 
So maybe, uh, uh, you know, brought back some good memories for Go you. Go back and, and watch some of these again. Okay, that wraps up this episode. But so, Scott, uh, what do you have planned for next episode? So as we are advancing in our podcast, and we're so happy that we are be able, you can listen to us on Spotify, on iTunes, and on iHeartRadio. Well, we are the fastest podcast in Nashville, Pennsylvania. That's right. We sure are. And growing podcast. We don't, we don't want to let anybody forget that. That's right. So what I'm going to do is, as we are now sort of evolving into some technology, maybe those of you that listen to our podcast wonder, you know, what would, if there's no background noise to these guys, what if we had some sound effects or what if we had some music that we could play? So through the magic of Spotify, who is our main sponsor for this podcast, we're actually going to be able to start playing some audio of music. And so here's what we're going to do. Something that Sean and I have been doing probably since we were little kids is we, there was a TV show that came out in the set or it may have been even before the seventies called name that tune. So we're going to take a little bit of technology to where we can now play some music, some musical clips. We're going to play name that tune with Sean. Oh, you're going to try to stump me. And the okay. theme, the theme is TV theme, uh, theme songs. Oh, this is going to be tougher. <laughs> so, uh, I'm going to play theme songs from television shows from the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and you guys are more than welcome to play along. So I'm, I'm going to get killed on this because there, <laughs> there's a period, maybe mid 80s or so, where I stopped watching a lot of sitcoms, and so you're, you're going to, oh, uh, you know, there's going obviously, um, much like they do when they do the uh, the half halftime shooting challenge, they yeah. give you the layup. I'm going to oh. give you some layups. So okay. you'll, right. get, you'll get some layups and th- free throws, but there'll be some three-pointers. Okay, out there I'm too. up for the challenge. All right. So next week, we're going to, next uh, episode, we're going to talk about uh, Name That Tune, uh, TV theme shows or theme songs for television shows. So hopefully you'll uh, tune right in here on Gen X Playback. And as always, we thank everybody for tuning in. I can't believe it just, uh, it makes me happy to, to see so many people from so such different areas uh, in the world, let alone the United States, that are getting a kick out of this show. So we really appreciate everybody listening, and, and we really we we can't thank you enough. Oh, absolutely, and it's something that we plan on keep bringing you the content. It's it's something that we enjoy. We we definitely love to reminisce about the seventies, eighties, and nineties. You know, it's a great period. We never run out of things to talk about. Hopefully, uh, you know, just to talk about uh, with adding iHeartRadio to uh, to our lineup. But we we are down the road. We're not necessarily sure when, but we are working on putting something together in terms of uh, a little bit more of a community thing, such as a website or or some type of communication where we can have a little bit more direct link to uh, to our listeners. So yep. hopefully yep. that'll be coming soon. Yep. So look for those things, and we will develop the tribe. So for the largest podcast in Nestville, Pennsylvania, thanks for listening to Gen X Playback. I'm Scott. And I'm Sean. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. See you.